For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. With our Bibles open, let us ask for God's blessing on his word. O Lord our God, we give thee thanks that we're not left in heathen darkness, but that we have the light of life before us. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider this portion of thy truth, that thou would write it upon our hearts, and that thou would help us to appreciate that thou art the God of salvation, the one who has provided a way whereby sinners can be in glory with thee. We pray that thou wouldst forgive graciously our sin, that thou wouldst wash us in the precious blood, and accept of us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Now, this letter uh, to the epistle to the Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to a congregation of believers that was in the most powerful city and the greatest city on earth in its day. We don't know a lot about how the church was established or how it had progressed over the years. We know that Paul was longing to visit the congregation because he tells us that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, where he tells us, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. And then he used this letter to state his doctrine and the theology so that the Roman believers would know what he believed and they would know that they believed in the exact same gospel. It would appear that the letter was written around the year 57 or 58 AD. So the congregation was well established and may have been around for around 50 years when Paul wrote this letter to them. It may be that some of the Roman Jews had been converted in the day of Pentecost that we had uh, the account of at the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, and had returned home to establish the congregation in Rome. These believers were spiritually mature Christians, so Paul was able to unfold the mysteries of divine grace in a way that stands apart in the New Testament. Chapter 8 of Romans is one of the crown jewels of the epistle to the Romans. And from verse 1, where we have that great statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, right through to the end of the chapter, which we read this morning, we have the assurance of salvation, glorification, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now this morning, I want to look at these verses we have in verses 29 and 30. These are verses that are packed full of teaching, and I want to consider what we are being taught here. What we have is God's certain fulfillment of his gracious plan of salvation that is being revealed here in this portion. 
In this passage, this is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. We see the beginning and the end of God's plan and purpose in salvation. In verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now that statement, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, this is the goal and the purpose of God. Understand what I'm saying. The elect of God, God's people, will be conformed to the image of his Son. This is something that goes and reaches back in eternity past, and it reaches forward to eternity before us. The word foreknew is not knowing about his people, because God knows about everybody. And this is also not knowing something particular about his people, because the idea has been presented that God foresees that certain people will believe that God looks down the line of history or the annals of time and foresees who will believe. The passage does not say that those who he foresees will believe. The word know here, or foreknew, is referring to those on whom God has set his love. This is love that reaches back into eternity past. This is the forelove of God for his people from all eternity. This is God's electing or choosing love, whereby he chooses in the counsels of eternity those who would be the heirs of salvation. Now, we we also think of that great verse, in John 6.37. John 6.37 is one of those classic verses that um, we often refer to when um, we may be leading somebody to Christ and what, somebody who is seeking the Lord. And it says there, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Well, when, is, when was that giving of the Father or of, of the giving of a people from the Father to the Son. Because Christ is stating there that the Father gave somebody to him, some group of people to him. This reaches back into the councils of eternity in which there was this gift given by God the Father to God the Son. It's a people whom he has chosen, his people, who are redeemed out of this world, sinners who deserve his wrath and curse, who deserve to be condemned to hell for all eternity, have been chosen by God to be heirs of glory. And it says that they shall come to me. See, this is a certainty. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. What a promise this is. You see, this is something that is one of those sure promises that we can lay hold on. And if you this morning do not know the Savior, and you seek him, and you can find him, because he's to be found. He's a Savior that is the Savior of sinners. And he's someone who desires and who longs for his people to be with him in glory. 
You see, they're heirs of salvation. He predestinated them and determined that they will ultimately be conformed to the image of his Son and be with him in glory. They will be glorified together with Christ. In verse 29, this is a fixed decree in the mind and the will of God. And the goal and the glorification of his people will be with Christ in heaven forever. Because he is, he's absolutely, he's saying, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. This is something that is absolutely certain. Now in verse 30, the apostle moves to show the stages of how this plan is fulfilled. Eternity past was this transaction, and then in time, what happens before people die and pass into God's eternity and the state of glorification? What happens to the people of God that brings them into this glorious state of heaven? Well, first of all, salvation is not of man. Salvation is of the Lord. God is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of sinners. It must be noted that salvation is the work of God alone. It's not the work of men. Only God can save a soul. And this is true of the work of salvation accomplished by the finished work of Jesus Christ. We know that verse very well in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, here is God sending his Son, God so loving the world. He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. He spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. That's what we have in verse 32 of the chapter we read. He spared not his own Son. He sent his Son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. This is something that only God can do. This is, this is also true of redemption as applied in the experience of the believer. Christ not only came to accomplish the great work of redemption and fulfill all the demands of God's infinite justice, but when we ask how do people become Christians, we're talking about the application of salvation in the life and the experience of those whom he has chosen. And God alone causes this to happen. It is God's purpose. You see, in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It's his purpose, whom he foreknew, he predestinated, he called, he justified, he glorified. It is all the work of God, and it is not the work of man. Now, this repetition is important that we understand the text. You see, it's God who does this. This is something that God alone, by his power, performs in the hearts and lives of his people. Salvation is of the Lord. 
Now, where does man come in? Is it not man who believes? And man who exercises faith? Is this not a human activity? Did not Paul tell the jailer in Philippi to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house? Yes. We are commanded to believe. And the scripture says that without faith it's impossible to please God. But we have to remember that the very act of faith and the very power to believe is from God himself. Why do some not believe? And why are others laying hold by faith? The answer is because of the effectual calling of God on those whom he foreknew or foreloved. Which brings me now to talk about God's effectual call and how it saves his people. You see, all the benefits of salvation, and I underline that, all the benefits of salvation are bestowed on those same people. All the blessings shown in this text are bestowed on all of God's people. There are some who hear the gospel and do not believe, and they receive none of the blessings spoken of here. The point is that when God's people are effectually called and the work of salvation is applied to them, all of the blessings are given to his people. There are those who hear the gospel and are commanded to repent of their sin and believe, but they harden their heart and they refuse to come to Christ. They reject the gospel. And these unbelievers receive none of the blessings of the gospel. Some receive all of the blessings, and others receive none. Now, John Wesley was an Arminian. You've heard the name. He believed in the free will of man to choose. And in his notes on this passage, he says the following. Paul does not affirm, neither here or anywhere else, that precisely the same number of men are called, justified, and glorified. He does not deny that a believer may fall away from his special calling and glorification. Neither does he deny that many are called that never are justified. He only affirms that this is the method whereby God leads us step by step toward heaven. Now let me be absolutely clear. This text and this passage says exactly the opposite of what John Wesley is saying. In other words, it is the same number of individuals who are predestinated that are called, justified, and glorified. In verse 30, there are the words, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he called, them he also Justified them, he also glorified. You see, the word whom and then are tied together. It is the same number of people. Let us not think that this is some arbitrary choice here. This is the work of God. All his sheep will hear his voice. You see, it's clear if we receive the word of God. The words cannot mean anything else than all the people that are chosen by God, who are foreloved by him, receive all of the blessings that are listed here in this passage. The text tells us that there are a number of the fallen race of man 
whom God has foreknown or foreloved, and that those people who are in Christ and are predestinated by him to salvation will be called, justified, and ultimately glorified. Now, this calling of God is an effectual call. Men and women will believe and exercise faith when God works effectually in their hearts. We refer to this as effectual calling. Faith and belief are the result of God's call and God's action in effectually calling men and women out of a state of darkness into a state of light. We know from our catechism Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. This is a very crystal clear definition of what effectual calling is. He predestinated, he called, he justified, he glorified. He called them in time, during their life. This is the beginning of redemption as applied in the life of the believer. It's true that many people hear the gospel and experience some common operation of the Spirit of God, but this call is distinct This call that's referred to in here is distinct to those who are heirs of salvation. In verse 28, when it says, though to them who are the called according to his purpose, this links us back to the beginning of the book of Romans. In Romans 1-7, where it tells us he's writing this letter to the believers in Rome, and he says, to all that be in Rome, Romans 1-7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this calling, called to be saints, that's talking about you and me. That's talking about us. We are called by God to be saints. And if we have been effectually called by the work of his Spirit in our hearts, God is doing what he has purposed. It is his purpose and his plan. You see, this is not the outward general call to repent and believe on Jesus. And there's a a teaching that is common. You'll hear it among a lot of people. Give your heart to Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. The command to repent and believe goes to all men and women. But the effectual call of the gospel is the work of God's Spirit to enable, to change our will, to renew our will, to give us that power that is from above, which we'll come to see in a minute, to believe on Jesus Christ as the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, as the Savior of sinners. I want to turn to a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23, the apostle says, But we preach Christ crucified, 
unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, the preaching was to everyone in Corinth who heard, both believers and unbelievers. But many of them were so proud, they were not going to believe in Jesus, especially a crucified Savior, one who had died and bled on a Roman cross. Their pride showed their unbelief. You see, calling is not outward. It's not merely the outward message of the gospel, which goes to all men. It's the inward call. That, in verse 27, called because they were chosen. You see, this is the work of God in renewing the heart and the will and bringing the believer to faith. You see, we need to have our heart renewed. And a sinner who has his heart renewed by the power of God, is made willing. He has a new will given to him. And he's able, by the power of God, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to fully trust in Jesus Christ. This is the salvation that we're talking about. I also want to turn over to a passage in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. And he says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here the apostle is echoing the same message that he has in Romans, and he says they were chosen. But how did he know that they were chosen? It was because they believed. They had the Spirit of God working in them, working in their hearts. They had been effectually called, and this evidence was in their faith and belief of the gospel of saving grace. There's also a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. How did he know they were elect? They had been converted. Their lives had been changed. They were born again of the Spirit of God. There were some in Thessalonica that had heard the exact same preaching, and they were not converted. But these believers were regenerated by the power of God. This calling 
is what God does alone. He changes the heart and the will so that a fallen, depraved sinner is able to repent and believe and be saved. It's God who takes away the stony heart and gives the heart of flesh. It's God who makes the sinner willing in the day of his power. I always love that statement. And Psalm 110 is one of the most amazing psalms. But in verse 3 of Psalm 110, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. What a statement that is. Thy people shall be willing. You see, it's God who makes them willing. It's God who renews the will and makes his people willing in the day of his power. This is God's saving grace that is efficacious and the purpose of God in salvation is accomplished and applied to the believer. This work of God can never be frustrated and resisted. God works in the heart. Man cannot frustrate or resist the work of God's grace. God doesn't just send out the gospel message and hope that some people will believe and hope that man in his fallen state will act and hope that maybe there will be some who will come to faith. No, no. My word shall not return to me void or empty. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Isaiah 55, 11. God alone takes the initiative here. Let's look at it. Ephesians 2. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. I don't see hope there. This is God acting. This is God performing his work of salvation by his power in the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls. John eleven thirty nine. Here's the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. And he's corrupt. And he's in the tomb. John 11, verse 39. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. Then took they away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto him, Loose him, and let him go. You see, raising the dead from a state of complete decay, he'd been dead four days, his body had decayed, and the word of Christ the power of God, nothing less than that, was required to bring Lazarus 
from a state of death and corruption to life. And Lazarus, we know that he, he lived for some time after. And what was that? You see, he was dead. He was blind. He was deaf. But when Jesus called him, he was given new life. You see, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's God who initiates his creation, not the creature. You didn't form yourself and initiate your birth. Why should you think it was anything less when it comes to spiritual birth? When God in Genesis said, let there be light, and it was formed, so it is in salvation. God alone is sovereign and calls from death to life, from darkness to light. The sinner by nature has no desire to flee to Christ or to love God or love his word or love to pray. Just think about the people that you meet each day. They have no desire. People that are fallen and in sin. But when God calls them, when God works in their heart, when God works in your heart and regenerates you by the Spirit, what was the result? Behold, he prayeth. You think of the apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was full of hatred and enmity. But when God changed him, when God stopped him on the Damascus road, and when God changed him, the statement was, behold, he prayeth. You see, God changes his desire because the work of God is sure. This is why we pray for the salvation of the lost. And when we hear of people who hated God and hated the truth and were converted, they now love the truth. They love the things of God. They love the place of prayer. It's the power of God who changes the heart and the will. When Jesus said, ye must be born again, he wasn't telling us what we need. He is telling us what we need. He's not telling us what we must do. You can't make yourself born again no more than you could initiate your birth as a baby. But what is that power that's needed? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let's look at that in, first, or in Ephesians 1 and verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. This is the power that's needed to raise a sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's resurrection power. It's ascension power. The same power that was needed to raise Christ from the dead and the same power that was needed to bring him to glory is the same power that's needed in your and my life. Now, the people of God who are called are justified. They will be justified. But they are not justified until they are called. There's a false teaching that says that justification of the elect is certain in the purpose of God, and therefore the elect are already from eternity justified. And that when they're converted, that it's simply a realization of something that is true all along. God had decreed the elect to be justified, but they are not justified until they are brought into union with Christ. Because in the text it says, whom he called, them he also justified. 
This is something that is important. In the, in the confession, it actually has a statement about this. It said, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they're not justified until the Holy Spirit does in due time apply Christ unto them. This is important, that we understand that conversion results in real justification. Justification is a legal term. It's a statement that here is somebody who's guilty, and they're standing before the judge, but the judge declares them not guilty. Now, how is it possible that a person who deserves to be condemned by God, who has broken his law, and who deserves eternal punishment, can be declared not guilty? You see, this is only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his imputed righteousness. In verse 1 of that chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. See, justification is this act of God's free grace. It's God that justifieth. Verse 33 of the chapter that we read, it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Understand that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted by God. God is well pleased with Christ's sacrifice. And his sacrifice has not only washed away our sin, but it has given to us his spotless righteousness. You see, it's not enough that your sins would be dealt with. It's not enough that all your sins would be washed away. You need to have a perfect righteousness to be able to stand before the presence of God. And Christ gives us his spotless righteousness. Now, there is a statement here that the justified will be glorified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. This glorification is absolutely certain. The text doesn't say that those who are justified might be glorified. It says, whom he justified, them he also glorified. No exceptions. There's no one who is glorified who is not justified. But it's also true that anyone who has been justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ will be glorified. Now, there are reasons for this assurance. First of all, there is the will and purpose of God that is unchangeable. I love that statement in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar made this statement that he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? 
God is absolutely sovereign and his will and purpose is unchangeable. So when he says here, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified, this is absolutely certain. And their standing, the standing of a believer in Christ is unchangeable. He's justified by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So in that beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So it's talking about Jesus Christ. God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is certain. This is something that is absolutely certain, that our standing, not only have we been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and declared not guilty, but we have his spotless righteousness imputed to us. And we have the promise of not only Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation, but let's look at it also in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5 and verse number 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. What a statement that is. But it's absolutely certain. You see, those are the words of Jesus Christ. And... They have been redeemed, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Redeemed with the precious blood. You see, the, the blood of Christ that was sacrificed on Calvary's tree is the one sacrifice for sin forever. So understand that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice, the only sacrifice ever. All the sacrifice in the Old Testament, all the bloodshed of all the animals and everything pointed forward to that one sacrifice. And we can look back by faith on that perfect sacrifice, never to be repeated. So there, in history, in all of human history, there is only one sacrifice for sin forever. Now, let's not, let's, let's lay hold on that for a second. When you hear of somebody say that they're offering the body of Christ in the sacrifice of the Mass, which they do thousands of times for the living and the dead, for all kinds of things, what are they doing? They're doing something that is utter blasphemy to the holiness of the one sacrifice for sin forever. Now understand that there has only been one sacrifice and there will ever only be one sacrifice for sin. And our whole Old Testament and our New Testament point to that one sacrifice. This is a reason for assurance. 
You see, this is a reason for blessing that that sacrifice has been completed and Christ is seated. All the priests in the Old Testament never sat. There was no chair for them to sit anywhere in the, when they were doing their service. But it says that Christ is seated. Why? Because his sacrifice has been accepted. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Why? Because he's in glory and his sacrifice has been accepted. And not only are we redeemed with his precious blood, but we are adopted into his family. In Romans 9 and verse number 26, And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was sent unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. What this is saying is, is that we are sons and daughters of God himself. We have been adopted into his family. If we realize that, if we thought of that just briefly, we would live differently. If you knew that you were the son or the daughter of a king, well, think of the royal family. Now, I know I'm not here to talk about the royal family and all their misdeeds. But the point is that there is a certain degree of decorum and there's a certain degree of respect for someone who is a son or a daughter of a king. We are sons and daughters, not of some earthly kingdom, of the king of heaven, of God himself. Let's live that way. Let's act as children of God because we have been adopted into his family. And with that comes all the privileges and all the blessings, including what is here. And we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer at enmity with him. We've been sanctified by the spirit that continually works within us. And the promises of God can never fail. In verse 28, it says all things. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. All things. That is an all-inclusive statement for every aspect of our lives. Let me tell you, sickness, death, trial, all of the hardships. And some of those hardships are extremely difficult. It is part of the all things, all the good things, but they all say that they all work together for good. They, God in his purpose has a plan and a purpose for our lives, and they are all working together for our good. Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is all of the blessings and the privileges that are part of the children of God. And then we have assurance because 
of Christ's merit and intercession for us. I just want to touch on a couple verses here. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer of our Lord, in John 17, and verse 11, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. See, there's the people that were given to him by God the Father. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. What a statement. These are... Now understand that John 17, in Christ's high priestly prayer, this is a model of his intercessory prayer for his people in heaven. It's a model of his high priestly role as our great intercessor. And these petitions that we have recorded for us here are being fulfilled. Because every prayer of Jesus will be fulfilled perfectly. Now it says in the verse that whom he justified, them he also glorified. You see, Paul is here speaking of the future as if it's already happened. He uses the past tense in this verse, and this is to show the absolute certainty of the glorification of all of his people that are justified, that they will be glorified. Now only God can speak with this type of certainty of the future. And he speaks about it as if it's already happened. He speaks about it like it's past. You see, the glorification here spoken of is not what happens at death, but rather the union of the body and soul in the image of Christ at the resurrection, when the believer is made in the image of Christ. Those whom he has given will never be lost, but they will be raised at the last day and be with him in glory. There's a, that resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 52, such an amazing statement, in a moment. So in this period of time, it's described here as a moment, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, this is an indivisible period of time. We talk about, you know, when you, when you read science that tries to find out the smallest unit of time. This is an indivisible period of time. It's a moment. It's instantaneous. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, This is talking about this transition where our bodies right now could never be in heaven. We'd be destroyed in a moment. But God is going to prepare us in a moment to be able to be in his presence and be able to stand in front of him in the perfection of a body that is like our Savior's. Now that is something 
that seems too good to be true. But this is what it's talking about. This is what the verse is talking about. It's talking about this transition that will make you fit to be in glory. It's unbelievable, but it's true. You see, it is certain that the soul goes to be with Christ at death. And it is certain that their bodies will be raised and reunited with the soul at the last day and be given a body like Christ himself. Christ said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You talk about certainty? You talk about guarantee? This is the word of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ calls a sinner, a hell-deserving sinner, he never regrets it. You and I do a lot of things in life that we regret. I've made choices that I regret. But I can tell you that Christ, when he calls a people, and you think about who he's calling, wretched hell-deserving sinners like you and me, that's who he's calling. And he never regrets it. It says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Without repentance. And I love that verse in Philippians 1. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of the chapter in Romans 8 that we read, means nothing if our endurance in salvation or our perseverance is dependent on our own effort or something that's in us by nature. It's no wonder that there's no assurance of salvation for many who follow the teaching of Arminius. Because they could be saved today and lost and separated tomorrow. And I've known people, they come to death and they wonder if they will ever get there. They wonder if they'll ever get to heaven. They have this hope that they'll get to heaven, but they're never sure. You see, if your salvation is dependent on what you have done or some effort on your fallen nature, the situation is absolutely hopeless. You will never be in heaven. But the salvation that we're talking about here that's found in Jesus Christ and his finished work is all of grace. And we can be sure with the certainty of God's word that we will be in heaven. You see, Romans 8.18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is absolutely true. It's not a might be revealed in us. It's a shall be revealed in us. You see, this is certain. We know that these elements that try to separate us, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These temptations are real. 
These trials are real. These things are true in the experience of believers. They're hard. But God is greater than all these things that could potentially separate us. Just one note on that. He says in verse 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Why didn't he put it the order that we normally, you would think he would have said life and then death. But he flips the order there. And he does that for a reason. Because he's talking about life after death. He's talking about the unknown. And who's going to keep your soul Who's going to preserve your soul? Who's going to keep you after death? Who's going to keep you through death? And who's going to keep your soul after death until the great day of the resurrection? You see, what he's saying here is that in Christ we're kept and it's certain and our soul is preserved not only through death but through life after death into eternity. And nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ our Lord. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank thee that we have thy precious word and that we have the assurance of being with thee in glory. We pray that thou would free us from our own righteousness. And help us afresh to stand in the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that thou wouldst forgive graciously our sin, wash us in the precious blood, and accept of us for Christ's sake. Amen.